Hey guys, it's Dr. Judy. Since 1971, Pepperdine's Graduate School of Education and Psychology has had one mission, to strengthen professionals for lives of purpose, service, and leadership. Online psychology at Pepperdine is the latest evolution of that mission, with online master's programs designed for people who want to align their work to their life's true calling. Online psychology at Pepperdine offers a master's of arts in psychology, a master's in applied behavioral analysis, and a master's in clinical psychology. The online master's program are led by renowned faculty in the field who are passionate about their life's work and their students. Students learn from faculty like myself, who see sharing knowledge and mentoring students as more than work, but a noble pursuit and responsibility. The format combines live online learning with hands-on clinical training in each student's own community. At Pepperdine, purpose is not just something we preach, it's something we embody. We are a community of more than 130,000 professionals making waves and enriching lives. So what are you waiting for? Pursue your purpose at online psychology at Pepperdine. Visit PepperdinePurpose.com slash Supercharged Life to learn more. That's Pepperdine spelled P-E-P-P-E-R-D-I-N-E Purpose.com slash Supercharged Life to learn more. See you there. Hi, I'm Dr. Judy and welcome to Supercharged Life, where I help you discover new ways to create success, wellness, and fulfillment and give you tangible tools to supercharge your life. Today's Supercharged Secret is all about overcoming adversity. Whether it's a tough childhood, an accident, the loss of a loved one, mental health concerns, or yeah, the stress of this pandemic, adversity strikes all of us. But people can choose how to respond and you can learn how to navigate around roadblocks that would stop other people in their tracks. People who learn to overcome adversity are able to bounce back better, learn important lessons, and supercharge your life going forward. My guests today are three very special people who have found a common bond through their favorite sport and use this as a template for overcoming adversity. Dibs Bear is a journalist and author who left a posh position as editor-in-chief of a celebrity weekly magazine to become a full-time writer. Chris Sasio is a physical education teacher in the Bronx, and Robin Romero is a 20-year-old nursing student once coached by Chris when she was in middle school. Dibs grew up in a suburb of Chicago where Chris and Robin grew up in the inner city, very poor and with unimaginable hardships. But because of their love of softball and baseball, Dibs met Chris and a beautiful yet unusual relationship was born. Lots of lessons were learned, especially the realization that we are all not so different despite outward appearances. Welcome, Dibs, Chris, and Robin. So awesome to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. You know, I wanted to start by talking about our love of sports because I love sports. I played sports all throughout middle school and high school. Uh, and I think team sports, especially. I played basketball. I played volleyball. I was on track. I was in tennis. And I got to tell you, they have been so instrumental to my own mental wellness and also just learning some really important skills of life. So, Dibs, I want to start with you first. You know, you've had these really prestigious positions and in your writings and in your work as an editor, you've worked for some of the biggest periodicals and magazines and mostly writing about entertainment and humor. But why did you make this pivot to writing about this topic in Lady Tigers? Yeah, well, I had heard about the team through a friend of mine that I played competitive softball as a kid until I was like 18. And one of the women on my teams from my childhood is a coach now. And she invited Chris's team to play them. And she was telling me about the story. And I was kind of blown away by the story of Chris and his girls. And so we talked and we met and we just kind of instantly hit it off. And once he started telling me about the first year of this program, I just was, you know, my love of softball and then also just knowing an unbelievable story when I see it. I, I wanted to work on it, it, you know, even though it was a little outside of what I normally do. Well, it sounds like it was really a passion project for you that kind of started that way. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Really felt like was meaningful and wanted to pursue. And as people who love team sports and love softball and baseball, and I'm assuming other sports as well, what do you guys think is going to happen now? I mean, obviously right now in our country, so many states and counties are saying we're going to have to go virtual in the fall because of the pandemic, which of course means that 
we're not going to have team sports the way that we're used to. So Chris, maybe we can start with you. How are you feeling about all of that? And how are you helping to manage that for yourself and for your students? Well, I know from my end, um, my students, well, my girls, they were crushed to hear that, listen, there's no team sports. We can't practice. We can't go to the field. We have to wait it out. And in their minds, they just want to play. And that's because being part of a team, playing on the field, for some girls, that's all they have. And that's their escape from the harsh reality of their world. And so when you take their world away, they feel like they have nothing anymore, especially when you're part of a team, you're actually part of a family. So you're literally taking away their sisters and just the whole mental aspect of it, 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 it just crushed them. And so right now, they, you know, most girls are very, very anxious. They don't know what to do with themselves. I do give them my email. So we do keep in contact and I do keep them updated on what we're going to be doing in the future. Um, I say, as soon as team sports come back, guess what? We're back. But we just have to bear with it. You know, your health is more important than throwing a softball right now. It's so tough. Uh, do, do you both also watch um, spectator sports? I mean, do you watch MLB and NFL and NBA? Do you guys watch those sports too? Yeah, MLB. It, I mean, it's amazing how um, they have the cutout boards and the, and the, the crowd and the, the, the audio of the crowd. I'm like, this is amazing. Can they do that for us too? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it is amazing. I mean, I wish um, sports for children were like that too, but unfortunately it's not. So we just have to wait it out. And, you know, I think obviously we're seeing that even on the national level with these pro teams, there's still challenges. You know, I, I was so excited to see team sports come back. And in some ways, it feels like a bit of normalization that we all need. Right. And we need that distraction. We need to feel like we're making progress. And then you get all of this news that there's so many teammates getting positive COVID tests. And I just feel like we keep getting knocked down when we're trying to get back out there. So Dibs, how have you been trying to maintain just your positivity through all of this, you know, being somebody who appreciates sports, obviously, and have seen firsthand, especially as you delve into writing this book, how important it is to help people hold things together during tough times. Yeah, well, I mean, well, first of all, I'm a huge White Sox fan. And so I've, I've been watching every single game every day. My brother and I are texting each other during the games. And it's and, and unfortunately, they haven't had uh, COVID problems yet. Um, so but yeah, I mean, I haven't been able to do I like to go to the gym. I like to hike. I live in an area that there's a lot of hiking and it's it's kind of hot right here. So I can't do that. So it's it's not only like the physical thing, it, it affects your emotional well-being when you can't play sports for sure. And um, yeah, I feel for everybody. I mean, it's hard to get through for sure. It's definitely so difficult. And I think for people who have experienced the beauty of team sports firsthand and have seen what it's done for, as you just mentioned, Dibs, physical and mental wellness. It, it is heartbreaking. And obviously we will get through it. It's a temporary time, but it is so stressful. And, you know, Coach Chris, you know this better than anyone. When we're young and you're working with these kids, middle school, high school, I mean, two days feels like forever, right? So it's very hard to say, we don't know when this is going to happen, but it probably won't happen in the next couple of months. I mean, that feels like forever for a young person. And I know that when you were younger, you've had your own challenges too. I, I love reading about your story in Dib's book and how you had your loving parents, you know, you, they try to make ends meet as best as they can, but you did still have some constant challenges in your life as a child. And it was part of the inspiration for why you realized that the next phase of your life was going to be coaching these kids and, and bring them together through sports. So tell us a little bit about your childhood and some of the things that you went through. My childhood was pretty happy. I would say, I mean, um, I was, I didn't have much, but that didn't matter because my my mom and dad enforced the idea like you don't have to have much, but um, as long as you have family, you're rich. That's that's what we live by. And um, unfortunately, you know, I did get teased and bullied in school because obviously I didn't have much, and kids could be cruel. And I really didn't have people to help me. I didn't have teachers to help me. I feel like I was all by myself in this. And so as I grew up and I grew older and I, I, I made the decision, I wanted to become a teacher that I wanted to have. 
And it was just very hard growing up as a kid. I had extreme anxiety issues um, that, that led into panic attacks. And those were daily panic attacks. And I just felt very, very alone. I felt like the, no one was able to help me. And that feeling alone just crushed me. I um, really appreciate you sharing that. And Dibs, I know in your book, you profiled this very, very well because the feeling of the fact that when you're a child or a teenager and that everything feels like it has to boil down to survival, I, I was very touched by the part of the story where you were actually doing very well in school you were academically doing well, but you kind of quit being the smart kid because that was one of the other reasons why you could be teased and bullied. And honestly, there's just no time for being the smart kid and studying if you're worried about getting beat up every day. And so you kind of hardened up, hung out with gang members, you quit playing baseball, um, you stopped going to church, all of the structure in your life that was probably actually contributing to you doing well at the time in other aspects, you kind of gave up because your main goal became just to get out of high school alive. And I would imagine that as you watch your father, who you also mentioned had PTSD and often self-medicated, I mean, I would imagine you learned some lessons too, watching these adults in your life and how they navigate through life, sort of like, well, there's a lot to fear out there and you got to armor up, basically. Did you feel that you got that message from your dad either he said it, or you just watched his behaviors and you felt like, wow, this is something I need to think about. Well, I live in a very old school type of family where, you know, there's no such thing as mental illness. You just have to get over it type thing. My, my father was a Vietnam war veteran. So there was nothing that we could ever possibly face that was compared to what he faced. So I felt like I had to be perfect almost like nothing could bother me. And if something was to, a challenge was to arise, I have to find a way on my own to get over it because it's just insignificant to me asking my dad for help when, you know, he's been through so much and well, my experience is just so, so little. So I feel like I have to be perfect. I felt I have to do everything on my own. I was, I was the oldest male in the family. So it was always put in my brain that I have to be the example for everyone. I have to be the one to make it. It was a lot of pressure on me to be perfect. And that, that pressure to be perfect kind of, I guess, broke me as well. You know, I was not regular size. I was really small. I was really smart. So, you know, that's, uh, that's what kids picked on the most. And I just didn't want to be me. I wanted to be someone else. And I tried to be someone else that I wasn't. And that was ultimately, you know, that's, you know, when kids try to find somebody or find themselves is that's when they, lose themselves. And I felt like I lost myself for a long time. And Dibs, I feel like as I was reading through the stories interweaving between what Chris had gone through, as well as what all of these girls that he was coaching was going through, there were definitely these commonalities. How did you sort of see them all intersecting? Because I know that there was a portion of the book where, you know, maybe these girls, they were kind of second guessing that Chris would even understand their experience. But as I'm hearing Chris tell us about this, Clearly, there were so many themes and, and there was a lot yeah. of qualities. Oh, there, yeah, there was there's a lot going on and a lot of different stories. Um, the thing that I think was common between all of them is that they were looking for someone they could trust and that would help them be safe. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what Chris was. And I think that's what the softball program was, because, as, as you know, from reading it, when the team started out, it had nothing to do with softball. Uh, they weren't good <laughs> at it at all. They didn't. They didn't care about it at first, but they had somewhere to go every day mm. because they didn't want to go home. They couldn't play in the streets because it was too dangerous. Even their own school was dangerous. And the one thing that made them feel safe and feel like they had a family was Chris and the program. And for whatever reason, and this is why I was so drawn to the story, they kept coming back every day, despite all of the problems they had with the team at first, even. Um, the infighting, the, all of their own personal problems, having problems with the teachers. And yet every day they kept coming back to Chris. And so that to me was like, wow, I mean, that's special. I mean, Chris is special. Anyone who knows him knows that he just has this vibe about him <laughs> and, and they learned to trust him very quickly. 
well, not very, maybe not very quickly, but they, they did. It was not quick. It took, it took like a semester. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and who could blame them? A lot of, they could not trust a lot of people in their lives, especially men, to be honest. And Chris proved himself over that time to be a person who was loving and trustworthy. So I think that's what happened. Dibs, I love how you put that. And I think that's profound that they were looking for safety. Uh, as a psychologist, we study early childhood experiences. And we understand that for people to really feel like themselves, to, to find their identity, as you were saying, Chris, and, and to feel safe doing so, to kind of navigate into the world and try different things, fail and come back, they have to feel like they have a secure base. And I think what you said was really important, which is that the common theme that tied everyone together was that this team and Chris was that secure base. And from there, they can then take more chances. They can then do things that they were afraid to do before. But that doesn't mean that Chris wasn't tested. So Robin, I want to hear about your first impression when you joined the team and what you thought about Chris. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) My first impression when I first joined the team, I thought it was going to be boring at first. (laughs) Because, like, playing sports back then wasn't really my thing. I was always, you know, an angry kid. So I didn't really think sports is going to help me solve anything Mm. at first. That's what I thought. Mm -hmm. And what did you think of Chris when you met him? Were you like, this guy doesn't know my life? I mean, what were you thinking? No, I thought he was really cool. I gave him a chance. Back then, I usually didn't do that. So I just, you know, I gave him a chance. And it's pretty amazing that you did. And I know, Chris, you even went through a bit of a mental crisis yourself as you were thinking about how you were going to keep this team together. On on the one hand, you were so happy people were coming back every day. They're coming to practice, et cetera. But it took you a little while before you really put those boundaries down. In fact, you were maybe a little soft with them. I didn't want to lose the girls. I felt like if I hit them with all these rules and all these guidelines and because you're very, very strict that they're going to be like, oh, I'm not doing this. And this, I'll just lose these girls, especially Robin. Robin just, she ruled the, the, the hallways. You couldn't tell Robin anything. I mean, Robin was the sweetest girl in the world when you talk to her one-on-one. But if you get out her bad side, no, Robin was not having it. And I remember talking to Robin as, you know, one-on-one. I was like, Robin, listen, this is, what, this is how it's going to be. And Robin liked that. I think Robin liked the way I talked to her as a person, not as, you know, someone I'm looking down at her. Robin liked that. I knew how Robin was and I wanted Robin to be on my side. And so I wanted all the girls to be on my side. And so I guess I felt like putting down rules in the beginning, I'm not going to have them on my, on my side because they're going to see me as the authority as everyone else. And I, want, I didn't want them to see me as everyone else. I wanted them to see me as I'm on their side. And it makes sense that you would think about that at first. And like you said, oh, I finally got this group together and I don't want to lose them. But, and Robin, you can tell us if this is true. Actually, people do feel safer when there are rules and boundaries. Like they know from where to start, you know, if they were to step outside, then there's also more personal responsibility and acknowledgement of what they did. And I remember the part of the story where um, Robin was really trying very hard to not be aggressive and not start fights. And I remember, Chris, you said, you can't wear the jersey if you don't follow these rules. You can't be part of the team. And I love your rules. Your rules were, you know, you have to pass all your classes. You have to show up. You can't be, you know, cutting class. You can't be showing up at the dean's office all the time. You Practice has to be mandatory. And you guys all have to support one another. And, and Robin, what was going on in your head? I remember this moment during the book where... Uh, you were asked to return your jersey. And it was important to you. You were wearing it every day. So it became part of your identity, obviously. So can you tell me about that moment? What do you remember about it? And and what did you think? Actually, when he took away my jersey, I was very mad. Very, very mad. I started crying, everything. And I I wanted to talk to him at the time. He didn't want to talk to me. He was like, because I took away your jersey. When you know how to like follow instructions, I'll give it back to you and stuff. I was really mad during that time. Did you understand why he was doing it or at the time, not really? (laughs) I I did, but then again, I didn't. Yeah. 
it, it's hard because it feels unfair in some ways, but I think then you guys obviously reflected and you guys had a talk and you got to have your Jersey back. If you passed your test and you were, you studied and you passed. And then this is exactly why boundaries are so important. I think that's a good message for parents out there who sometimes feel like I don't want to hurt my kid. I don't want to stress them out, but it's important to have those rules, right? Because then it's helpful for you to grow into the person you are now. And, and Robin, you're 20 and you're studying to be a nurse. Is that right? Yes. It's amazing that you've decided to dedicate your life to taking care of other people where a lot of your upbringing was not really about that. Maybe you didn't feel cared for, but now you're saying, I'm going to turn it around and I'm going to bring positivity to everybody that's out there. So, so Dibs, did everybody um, receive you well when you said, Hey, I'm going to come hang out. I want to hear your story. Were people also a little suspicious of you at first? I find that when sometimes people have gone through some things in their childhood, like you said, it's hard to trust. It's like, why is this person here? Why do they care about me? What do they want to talk about? And is there a hidden agenda? Yeah, well, I would say that the first thing I did was I went on a bus trip with Chris and his new team to Boston. And when I first showed up and was standing on the sidewalk, nobody gave me the time of day. Uh, (laughs) I mean, literally, I brought donuts, you know, just to like, you know, kind of, and nobody really cared that I was there. And then honestly, it was, it's Chris. Like Chris made them understand this person's okay. She's going to talk to you. I trust her. And because of him, I feel like, honestly, everybody was so open with me. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I hope they trusted me. Like Robin, I remember Robin and I met at, Chris does a summer camp upstate in New York, uh, normally in normal circumstances. And that's where Robin and I met with another girl. And um, we just sat in like one of the cabins and Robin was just so brave and like telling, I mean, I am, I was a complete stranger telling me like these unbelievably personal things. And like, I have chills thinking about it now because, and again, I think the only reason, I think maybe you can ask her, Robin, you can tell me like, is because Chris gave the okay. They love Chris that much that they trusted him. Like he wasn't going to bring someone in their lives that was going to do anything bad, I think. I mean, I don't know, maybe, is that what you think, Robin? I don't know. Yeah, let's let's check that with Robin. (laughs) (laughs) So Robin, I know that you've had a lot of loss in your life. And and so has Chris. And I felt like that was another theme in the book of the theme of loss. And loss can happen in a lot of ways. Loss can happen when you lose somebody that you love very much. But loss can also happen when you thought that your identity was one thing and, and then it's actually another, right? There's a lot of different ways to think about loss. But I, I know for you, Robin, you suffered a lot of loss in, in the younger years of your life. Um, you basically at the age of 14 lost most of your primary caregivers and your grandmother was the one who passed away at the age of 14 and she was your best friend. Um, and I know Chris, you've been through your own personal tragedy as well, because your sister who you looked up to and loved so much passed away very untimely at the age of 31. And a lot of what you did after, including your involvement with starting the Lady Tigers, was in her honor because she always wanted you to be an educator. So how did you guys deal with that um, in the context of the team? How did you help each other? Because what I really loved is this one part of the book, and I'll just read um, from the section of the book, that all Chris wanted was to help these neglected, abused and marginalized girls have a shot at a decent life. And in return, he believes that they helped him get out of bed every morning too. So how did you guys help each other through that? Because I felt like there was a lot of loss among all of the members of the group. As for my loss, my sister was very heavily involved in helping young females. And she wanted me to become involved, but I was still young myself in my, in my head and I really didn't help her. And then there was a time where my sister was like, you know what, you should become a teacher because I believe you're more, way more in, in, involved with children and, than me and you could be more, have more of an impact. And I was telling my sister, no, no, I can't. And then when she passed at her funeral, it was as if my sister was a celebrity. There was all these young females all around the place. I'm like, I don't know these people, who are these people? 
And they kept coming up to me one by one saying, oh my God, your sister was, she helped me so much one by one. And I'm saying to myself, I really failed my sister. I need to, I need to do something for my sister. And I, and I went to her casket and I held her hand and I, was, I promised her that I will do something. And when I had the chance, when I graduated, I became a teacher and then I met the Lady Tigers. I met Robin who became just like my daughter. <laughs> and at first I did not tell them of my situation. I didn't tell them I wanted to learn their situation, but they did not trust me. <laughs> Most of them did not like me at all because they thought, oh, here's another adult. They, they, he knows nothing. Little did they know that I went to violent schools. I went to schools where I had to go up the staircase and watch someone polish their gun in front of me. Mm -hmm. They did not know that I had lost to my sister. So when I told them about the loss of my sister, they were like, oh my God, I did not know that this was happening. So I guess showing my vulnerabilities to these girls helped them to show them, show them that they could share with me their vulnerabilities. And so we bonded over loss and that loss helped us build trust and that trust helped us build family. And those girls would die for me back then and literally die for me because there was a game where we were being um, kind of followed by another group of people and they, mm. my girls surrounded me trying to protect me. I'm like, wait a second. No, it should be me protecting you. Hold on a second. So that, that's how far these girls trusted and loved me. And I love them equally. They were my daughters. I called them my daughters. I still call it Robin, my daughter. <laughs> Robin, what about you? What do you think about the bonds that bring you together when you've been through loss? I feel like, you know, the things that we've been through in life, like, I feel like it took me a lot of time for me to heal. But at the time back then, when I first met Coach, I didn't, I wasn't really healed properly yet. So, like he said, you know, everybody shared their stories with us. And it's like, you know, we all could relate to something which was hurt, pain. Um, we needed some closure coming for everything that we've been through. And especially the neighborhood that we was raised up in, it also went to school and it was just too much we seen as little children. And, you know, we kind of relate to everything, you know, that kind of like, kind of like brought us together. Yes. And I want to talk about that because really playing sports and being part of a team is a form of therapy. You're around like-minded people. Uh, you learn to not think just for yourself, but for everyone else. And Dibs, I'd love to ask you, what would have happened if just one of these girls decided to quit the team? I mean, what would that do to that group mentality? And how did you see them really sticking together, even as each individual was obviously going through various tough times, like when Robin lost her grandmother. I mean, that was a really tough time. It'd be easy just to say, you know what, I, I just want to go and, and, and lay in bed and not show up. Right. So yeah. What did you see about that dynamic? It just, you know, as someone who played on teams my whole life, um, it, it, like you were saying before, that is having a, a team of sisters in this case, um, you rely on each other. And it is true. If one of you doesn't show up or one of you messes up, you either don't want to disappoint the rest of your teammates because you're all in it together. Or it could be the kind of thing where you um, rely on them. Like you, you go to them because you know you can. I mean, that's the whole thing about being on a team. And um, again, that the, the, re the thing that there were a lot of different ways to do this book, because as you saw from reading it, there's so many different stories in the book. Each one could be its own book. Robin could write her own book, and I think she wants to, you know, about just her life. Mm -hmm. So the fact is that, you know, that, that all of these things happening all together at the same time, and if they hadn't all shown up every day, that is what is so remarkable about this story, really, is that with everything going on, each individual had a problem, but I think that having all of these girls around every day helped them get through it. And, and you know that later in the book, Chris has these, uh, are they called circle? I can't remember now. <laughs> circle talks uh, where they, they didn't even play softball at practice. They sat in a circle and they talked about their problems. 
and Chris sort of moderated it. And I think from the beginning of the season to the end of the season, you see this incredible personal growth through most of the girls on the team. And a lot of it has to do with just sitting there talking to each other about their problems. And so it is about softball, like the actual game, the actual sport teaches you a lot, but also it's just having this group of people around you that have your back all the time. You know, that's the whole focus. So, I mean, so true because obviously the sport is important. Being part of a team though is the most important thing because as you described in the book, Dibs, Lady Tigers lost all over the city for a while. <laughs> what on a crazy losing streak. And I only, I only laugh because I was part of a basketball team that was like that. I think our record was 16-1 and 16 other teams. So it's actually 116. I think that's how 116. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what? I, I still loved it every day. You know what I mean? I mean, it was a great experience for me. I don't really think about the losses, right? Because there's other wins and we're talking about those other wins. In the book, you talk about that when you guys did finally win a game, it was your first win, but really it was a triumph over self-esteem issues, over anger, over rape, over doubt, over everything. And that the Lady Tigers really found out that they were winners. And I love this idea of these circle talks because in therapy, we do that, right? We do process group and we have people come together and they share their experiences. And sometimes you think, well, what does it mean if I share a story? But actually it means so much because somebody out there is going to hear that story and say, this totally resonates with me. And even though you guys all grew up in different environments with different things that were complex in your life and things that you had to deal with, there were certain similarities that connected you guys. I mean, you had loving people in your families, but there were other issues. Dibs, you were dealing with issues with your sexuality, perhaps what people call gender identity, and, and having a difficult time coming to terms with how you would talk to this uh, the people in your life about it. And Chris, you already mentioned that you were dealing with anxiety. And Robin, losing your parents at such a young age, I mean, what does that do to an individual in terms of who they believe they are in this world, right? And so I think these themes of identity and who you are and who you can become, that's a similarity. And I think you wouldn't know that just by looking at the three of you, like you see each other down the street, what do you have in common with somebody? And then you sit down, you have these conversations. These are the things that you have in common, right? So Chris, what did you feel like were the things that you learned the most from, from having these circle talks and why did you start doing them in the first place? Um, in the, I started these circle talks in the beginning because as you read in the book, I had separate clicks in the team because, because if Robert remembers, the school was divided into three academies. We had John Jay, UConn and Columbia University. So those three academies became like ultimate three gangs. And I saw those three academies inside my team. And one academy wouldn't talk to another academy. And it was just girls arguing with each other over nothing, really. It was nothing. And I used to tell the girls, if we cannot coexist on the field, we're not going to win a game. It takes communication and teamwork for us to win a game. And even me trying to tell them that, they still curse at each other fight with each other and it was like having siblings fight in front of me and i'm like oh my god I, I don't know what to do and so i spoke to everyone in the school and they suggested you know just sit down and talk with them and the first time i had a circle session that was the most successful section session ever because girls were like you too i i didn't know that and you your father left you too at this age really i didn't know that you suffer from anger I didn't know that. So those similarities help bring everyone together. And so the walls that they built up so high started to crumble down little by little. And of course, I didn't talk during these sessions. I just sat down and I just said, I moderated it because still in the beginning, the early sessions, there were still girls talking over each other, screaming at each other. And I had to say, hey, stop. Yep. We're going to reset. And I was like, we're going to keep doing this until I feel like we accomplish something. I, was like, I don't care if it's three or four months that we're doing circle sessions. We're not going to touch a single softball until we get through a perfect session. And that's what we did. And that's so important for building teamwork too. And just feeling like you can trust your teammates. If you didn't have those circle sessions or circle talks, I don't think that you can trust each other enough to actually work together as a team the way that you would like a team to work together. 
you know, in, in, in such an environment. So Robin, what did you think of these circle sessions at first? Was it a little intimidating to have to talk about yourself and the things that were bothering you? Um, at first, yeah, because it was like, you know, I really had a hard time trusting people back then. The only person I did trust, she passed away, which was my grandma and stuff. So it was kind of hard for me to really sit here and talk about my emotions with other people. But you know what they say, like, you never know what someone's going through until you guys actually have a conversation with them. And I just feel like everybody expressed themselves differently during that time before he even thought about doing these um, circles to talk and stuff. Like, you know, some people express they, you know, they feelings through anger, fighting and stuff. And that's how we all was back then. And I feel like that's the circles, they kind of like open everybody up to the idea where it's like, you know, okay, we all can relate to something that we've been through. We should just come together and make the best out of it. Absolutely. And Dibs, as you reflect back on your own childhood and growing up and your own journey, did you see some similarities for you as you're thinking about what happens in these circle talks and how people bond? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, sports for me were uh, the place that I, I was a leader because um, I happened to be pretty good. Uh, <laughs> that was the one, that was the place where I felt confident. You know, I was going through, uh, well, back then I probably knew I was gay and now I consider myself transgender, but, um, it was the place where I belonged, where I was a leader and was like paid attention to because that wasn't really happening. You know, I wasn't like I was an outcast in like school, but I didn't have the same experience as anybody else. I wasn't going on dates and this was a way different time than what it is now. So I was very, not lonely, but I, so for me, the team, um, we were, it's not like I could talk about it back then. Like the, the way I would never, we would never, have, I would never have been able to say I'm gay in a circle session back when I was in high school. However, being on the team probably saved me in many ways because that is the place where I had the most confidence and self-esteem. So that, that was my connection to the girls. Like I might've grown up very differently than Chris and Robin, but my connection to this book was always very organic in the sense that sports saved my life too. Mm-hmm. Um, without them, I don't know where, where, without, I played three sports without doing that. I don't know where I would be today. So that, that was the, my organic connection to them, even though we had very different backgrounds and upbringings. So And I think that that is really such an important thing to remember that in the book, we talked about Chris's own motivations um, in terms of why he was so motivated to put this team together. And and Chris, you've been through a lot of trials yourself. You had a battle with cancer. You had a lot of different things that you had to go through. But this was the thing that you stuck with no matter what, because you wanted all the girls to develop something more than just softball skills. You wanted them to learn how to resolve conflict without violence, to understand what's behind anger. I know, Robin, this is really part of your experience, that anger was sort of covering up other things like your sadness, the loneliness of losing your grandmother, not feeling safe. And these skills, people don't bother to teach you sometimes. And this idea of discipline and teamwork and making good choices and taking responsibility for your actions, a sports team gives you all of those opportunities. And I love that, Robin, you said, and I think Dibs quoted you in the book, that Chris didn't just care about the team, though. He cared about individuals. And each of you guys had a special relationship and a connection with him. And that you felt safe when you were around Chris. You knew that he was somebody that you could trust. And does that make it easier now, Robin, for you to also trust other people that you will give them a chance? Yes, of course. Um, not only did I only trust, you know, Chris for giving me a chance, but now it's just like after all, after everything that I've been through, I did, you know, a little self-healing for myself. So now I'm comfortable more talking about it with other people that I barely know from a whole wall. Yeah. It really opens up your world and gives you more opportunity too to know people in your life who could be helpful to you and who you could have good relationships with. Mm-hmm. And I want us to talk now about the supercharged secret of the day, which is overcoming adversity, because that's what everybody needs to know about right now. Overcoming adversity doesn't mean that you don't go through tough times. In fact, everybody goes through tough times, but it's about what you do with those tough times. And I thought that we would talk about 
a few different tips for our listeners because they might be listening. They're thinking, well, it's easy to say that you're going to overcome adversity, but how do you actually do it? How do you do it practically when you're dealing with so much stress? And right now, so what I want to do is go through a few of these tips and I want to hear from you guys in terms of how we can do it. Okay. So the first part, which I think is so important right now in this time of stress for everyone is staying present as much as you can. Now, everybody has seen how this pandemic has been and you can't really make plans. You know, they keep getting canceled because, you know, you have a plan to do something and then you can't do it because, you know, there's another shutdown or there's another rule and it's hard. And I think human beings, it's hard when you don't get to plan ahead, but also it is so helpful if you can stay in the present and engage in something that you know is important in this moment. So Dibs, I was wondering, as you were putting this book together and writing this book and obviously feeling these connections, you know, how do you take that lesson of just staying connected to what you're doing presently and not worrying about, you know, what might happen in the future? Because I know that you even had a little bit of self-doubt yourself, like, wow, are people going to be okay with me writing this book? I mean, I didn't grow up like them. So are they going to judge me, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, all these things can fill up your head. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, I did have that that thought and I still do. But to me, uh, the most important thing was that it be, did it get out there. I wanted that to me was a more important goal than worrying about whether or not I should be the one writing this book. To me, it was about giving a voice to people who normally don't have a voice. There are thousands of girls all over the country, just like the girls that Chris coached and they deserve to, their stories deserve to be told. And I think it matters less that I told it than the fact that it's out there. So that was, that was the thing that I kept in my mind. Um, and in terms of being, just focused on it. I, and, and it is, it's about tuning out all of that noise and knowing that it was, the intentions were pure and that's all that matters. I think you, I think that's a, that's the tip probably is like tuning out the noise. I think that's so important. Tuning out the noise is a great piece of advice because I think we just listen so much to all the ruckus that's going out in our minds and also from other people. And, and sometimes you just have to stop everything and just focus on what you're doing and remember why you're doing it, which is really important. And Chris, we started this conversation about how hard it is to stay in the present right now. As you said, the girls that you're coaching, they're brokenhearted. They don't know when the team is going to come back. How have you been able to stay present and how have you been able to guide the girls that you're coaching to stay with it and be patient? Cause we don't have all the answers right now. As a cast survivor, um, I, I always can't, I always have this mentality that we're not guaranteed tomorrow, tomorrow. So I have two kids of my own and I do teach them that we're living right now. Do what we have to do right now. Enjoy what we have right now. Worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. All right. Right now we're with each other. Let's enjoy each other. Do what we need to do. If we have to say something, don't wait for tomorrow. Say it now. So with the girls that I have, they're really anxious about when sports is coming back. I tell them sports will be back. Mm -hmm. This is temporary. Don't worry about it. This is a chance for you to get connected with your family. Probably it give, just think of it as something positive. You're not doing sports. Guess what? Just try to do other things. What, what are you good at? So with other girls, um, some girls discovered they're good at writing. So now they're writing. Some girls discovered, Hey, I'm good at something else. And so they do something else. So I'm trying with the other girls to open their minds, not to be so narrow-minded just on softball, but just to open their minds and just to understand, yes, we are going through this struggle, but we're all in it together and we're all going to survive together. If we just keep our mind, keep, keep steadfast and just be present. That's right. Stay present, tune out the noise and work on other passions. Just be open-minded and then see what else might be out there while you're waiting for something to come back. The second tip to overcome adversity is really working through impulsivity and becoming the master of your emotions. So Robin, I want to talk to you about this because there was a time when you were much more angry and people would get on your nerves and you would want to fight them. But you're the opposite now because you want to become a nurse. And that requires a lot of patience. Um, so how did you get here? And how, how did you become the master of your own emotions? 
Well, when I, I went to the same mindset that I had, well, the same mindset I had in middle school, I went into high school with that mindset. And um, um, I started doing counseling and stuff, and, you know, it kind of helped. She knew that I had, like, anger issues, and she had so much patience with me. And I used to always tell her, like, I don't know how you do it, because I would have gave up. And she was like, um, you know, she was just always nice to me and stuff. Like, you know, let me, let me um, tone it down a little bit and stop being so mean to people and angry all the time. And like, I mean, I thank her because she really helped me a lot and stuff like that. Just go therapy. And now since it's like, you know, I'm becoming a nurse, it's like, you know, that's also helping me too. Yeah. Having that purpose and wanting to give back and also having good role models in your life. As you just mentioned, your therapist was one of them. And also Chris was one of them and seeing that other people can have emotions too, but that you just manage them differently. And I always encourage people to remember that emotions are there for a reason. It's evolutionarily adaptive, right? They're, they're telling us something. And if you can just slow down to find out what that emotion is trying to tell you, it's really not that scary. And anger is one of the most primitive emotions in terms of it basically encompassing all kinds of things. Like you can act angry and you can actually either be sad or discouraged or lonely. I mean, there's just so many other things that that is masking for a person. And so I'm so glad that you've been able to work through that. And this actually rolls right into the third tip for overcoming adversity, which is to seek and ask for help. I feel like as a society, we're very individualistic in America and there's a lot of value of pick yourself up, you know, do it on your own. Don't rely on other people. And somehow if you do, that means that you're weak somehow. And I think there's still a lot of stigma about getting help if you need to, whether it's reaching out to a friend or someone trusting or going to therapy. There's still so much stigma about going to therapy. Now I know all three of you have experienced therapy and I would just love to hear from each of you. What do you think people need to hear to give it a chance, you know, how do they kind of stop that mental roadblock and say, you know what, maybe I should go to a counselor. Maybe that could be helpful. So dibs you first. Oh, I love therapy. First of all, my mom's a psychologist, so that helps too. <laughs> so I don't have, I never had the stigma against it, but, um, for me, it was again, life-saving because I was, ha I had the secret inside of me that I couldn't talk to anybody else about really, um, for a long time. And, I don't know. I think therapy's fun. Like you get to talk about yourself for like an hour and <laughs> where else can you do that when you don't, and you don't look like a jerk. So, um, I just think it's like, you know, you can say anything to this person and they're on your side and they want to help you. And, um, I, I, you know, you sit on a couch, you can lay down if you want to, uh, you know, um, it just, the it, you know, I was in therapy for a long time and it took me a long time to be able to say out loud that I'm transgender. But once I mm. did, my life completely changed. And I didn't really talk about this before, but I drank a lot for like 10 years, for a decade, I would say. And therapy helped me stop drinking. It, and once I did that, and once I acknowledged that I was transgender, my whole world opened up. Like if you can talk about stuff it, and be open about it, it changes everything. So I'm a big fan and I think everybody should do it. That makes me so happy to hear because I'm a psychologist. So yeah. I love that you love therapy. And like you said, sometimes it's just so helpful if something is stuck to have someone to process it with. And like you said, where else can you get a whole hour of time talking about yourself and everything that's bothering you without seeming socially inappropriate in some way? <laughs> right. That's what you should be doing in therapy. Um, so that's great. I, I really appreciate you sharing that. Chris, what about you? How did you get across that barrier to go to the to counseling, because I would imagine, and you know, it's, it's something that I'm, I'm thinking of it. It was something that you grew up with, um, in the Latino culture. I know that there is these cultural values of machismo too. Right. So I, I'm sure that can play a role too, in terms of, Oh, you don't talk about your feelings really. That seems like an odd thing to do. So how did that affect you? And how did you finally get through that barrier to therapy? I mean, my, I guess my father gave me the definition of being a man is you don't get affected by stuff. You don't, you don't get angry. You don't get emotional. That's, that's little, that's female, that's feminine. And so, um, I grew up just thinking like, I can't really talk about my emotions because you know, that's just insignificant. That's, 
meaningless. I need to get over it on my own. But it became too much for me to bear. To, I felt like I was drowning. Um, I, I, the world was passing me by and I was just sitting there watching it. And the anger kept filling up and building up in me. And I, I came to a point that I was numb every day. I felt no pain. And to feel pain, I would punch walls so I could have, I could see holes in the wall or just see, I wanted to feel some type of pain because I, I had no pain. And at one point, I just, I, you know, I, I gave up. I said, I need help. I, I just, I can't do it on my own. And since I couldn't approach my dad, and there was no way I was going to approach my dad, I approached my mom. And my mom was just in tears as well. And I was in tears. And she said, I will help you. And it wasn't for my mom initially. I don't think I will be where I am right now. Of course, you know, my dad did get over that machismo complex. And he did jump over the fence. And he came with me on my journey of um, psychological healing. And as well, it helped him to get help for his PTSD. Because he saw, you know, I, how much I changed. And he's like, I want to have that change too. Don't try to do it alone. Do it with somebody else you trust. And if you need a professional, so what? It's great. It's great to have a professional on your side. And Robin, you went through this and it really helped you to become the person you are today to be able to talk about your feelings more freely and to process them well. And that's going to be great. You're going to cause a ripple effect too in the people in your life. So the fourth tip for overcoming adversity is to stay optimistic. And I know that is so hard right now to do. Everybody is stressed. And when you're going through a crisis, it's really hard to have a positive mindset, but that positive mindset is possible and is achievable. So Robin, tell me how you've been able to stay optimistic during challenging times. Um, I feel like it has a lot to do, it has a lot to do with faith as well. And especially when you're surrounded by people that look up to you, those words mean the most to me because I told people that was even younger than me, like I look up to you and it's like, I kind of had that in the back of my mind, like, okay, I got these young people looking up to me. You know, what if they went through what I went through when I was little? I wish I had somebody to look up to when I was little. So it kind of meant something to me as well, that, you know, like I should be doing the right thing to lead by example, like children, they lead by example. So it was like, and especially like, you know, I also have a goddaughter, so, you know, I treat her like she's my, my own. So she definitely leads by example, too. You know, I have a lot of people that look up to me. And Robin, I love what you just said, because optimism is a choice. It's a conscious choice that you make and you find your why. You find why you want to stay optimistic. And for you is to motivate other people, to guide and inspire people. And interestingly, people who remain optimistic, even in the toughest of times, they naturally bounce back. Faster. So not only are you serving as a great role model, but when you are able to develop more positive ways of explaining disappointing events, you can reframe them and you can find strength and joy during even the darkest of times. I also wanted to touch on one other point that, about the book is that the book, one of the huge themes of this book is hope. Because if you look at everybody's lives at the beginning of the book, it's pretty hopeless. Every single person in the book has kind of a hopeless story. And what I wanted to show in this book is that everything going on in your past doesn't necessarily have to determine your future. Things can change and things can get better. It does take some work. You can't, it doesn't just happen magically. Like you have to actively, you know, again, self-care, looking for mentors. Um, but that is like, it may be the biggest theme of the book is having hope. You, everyone should have hope no matter what is going on in your life, whether it's the pandemic or you have problems at home. Just you can't give up because if, if you just reach out a little bit in some way in the universe, it can get better. And I just don't want people to give up. You know, if anybody in this book gave up and, and not everybody made it through this book. You know, and is doing as well as like, say, Robin, but a lot of them are. And that's, you know, largely due to Chris, honestly. So that's what I would say about that. I love what you said, Dibs, because I think so many people right now are feeling down. They're not feeling hopeful. And this is a great book to be reading at this time because we all need hope. You really have to protect your energy and space right now because there is so much negativity out there. And you have to have good boundaries and you have to control what you're exposing yourself to. Sometimes people will come to me and they say, I'm depressed. And then I learned that they've been spending the last two weeks 
reading the news for four or five hours a day. It's like you want to be informed, but you really don't need to read the news for five hours a day. That will explain why you're feeling hopeless and down. And this really rolls right into the final tip. And that's why I'm so glad that you brought this up because the book is about hope and the book is about not giving up. And truly the last tip is to believe in yourself because none of the previous pieces of advice that we've been giving you is going to matter if you don't have a belief in yourself in the process, right? No one is saying you have to have all the answers right now, but you have to have at least that tiny little sliver of hope and a little bit of confidence that you have the ability to bounce back, that there's a chance you can bounce back. And so instead of saying to yourself, I can't, replace it with I will. It doesn't mean that today everything's going to change at the same time, but believe that change is possible. And I think for all three of you, if you didn't believe change was possible, you would not have been doing what you were doing. You would not have dedicated your lives to what you were doing. You would not have goals for yourself. You would not believe that what you have to say makes a difference. But every single person's story makes a difference. And if you can continue to channel that the best that you can, even during the toughest of times, you will get through it. And all three of you, Robin, Dibs, Chris, you guys are living proof that if you believe in yourself, you can do anything. And I just want to thank you all so much for being part of this podcast. And for those of you guys who have not heard about Dib's book, Lady Tigers in the Concrete Jungle, How Softball and Sisterhood Saved Lives in the South Bronx. I really enjoyed this book so, so much and was really honored to have each of you on the podcast today. So where can people find out more about all the great work you guys are all doing? Dibs, let's start with you. Uh, I have a website, dibsbear.com. And, um, you know, most of the stuff, like, it's not really related to this kind of stuff, but Yes, please, please tell everyone you know about this book. I want everyone to read this book if they can, especially young girls. Absolutely. Chris, where can people find all of the good work you're doing? Right now, I'm trying to start my own nonprofit that serves 300 girls. We were actually going to start in March before COVID. And then COVID came and just knocked us out. But we are hoping that after COVID, we could pick up where, from we left, where we left off. and rekindled that nonprofit. So this nonprofit is, is a league that caters to um, serving young adolescents in the inner city, female adolescents, and aiding them their, their quest to college. And you can find out about this information at www.theleagueNYC.org. Amazing. Well, we'll definitely tell people to check it out. And Robin, you are in school. How's everything going? And where can people find out about your journey to be a nurse? Um, social media. <laughs> Um, I don't got a website and I don't got a nonprofit, you know, thing like they got. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Robin, you're still important though. But, um, I love your Instagram. Thank story. you. <laughs> but um, you know, I got social media and stuff. What's your Instagram handle? Um, Robin Gates underscore underscore. Amazing. We will make sure to have all of those links so that you can keep in touch with Dibs, Robin, and Chris after this conversation. And thank you listeners for checking out this episode of Supercharged Life. If you like the show and want to learn more, follow me at Dr. Judy Ho. Remember to subscribe, download, and tell your friends about this podcast and Dibs book, Lady Tigers in the Concrete Jungle. I'm Dr. Judy, and remember, anytime is a great time to supercharge your life. Hey guys, it's Dr. Judy. Since 1971, Pepperdine's Graduate School of Education and Psychology has had one mission, to strengthen professionals for lives of purpose, service, and leadership. Online psychology at Pepperdine is the latest evolution of that mission, with online master's programs designed for people who want to align their work to their life's true calling. Online psychology at Pepperdine offers a master's of arts in psychology, a master's in applied behavioral analysis, and a master's in clinical psychology. The online master's program are led by renowned faculty in the field who are passionate about their life's work and their students. Students learn from faculty like myself, who see sharing knowledge and mentoring students as more than work, but a noble pursuit and responsibility. 
The format combines live online learning with hands-on clinical training in each student's own community. At Pepperdine, purpose is not just something we preach, it's something we embody. We are a community of more than 130,000 professionals making waves and enriching lives. So what are you waiting for? Pursue your purpose at online psychology at Pepperdine. Visit PepperdinePurpose.com slash Supercharged Life to learn more. That's Pepperdine spelled P-E-P-P-E-R-D-I-N-E Purpose.com slash Supercharged Life to learn more. See you there.